Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. I'm really pleased this morning to be speaking with Dr. Sonia Sloan. Now, Dr. Sloan is an orthopedic surgeon. She's a traveling orthopedic surgeon who has been in medicine for some years. She also describes herself as a health equity disruptor and as one of only 100 female African-American orthopedic surgeons. She's obviously broken some barriers and has quite a bit of passion to do more than just medicine. Dr. Sloan, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you, Lori. All right, well, let's let's get started. There is so much going on in the world of medicine today and what's happening with physicians and being one of few. And I want to talk about things like burnout and um, all of those things. But before we dive in, what are you doing right now, Dr. Sloan? What does your day-to-day look like in your practice and your work efforts? Uh, okay, so not today specifically because I'm being super mom today. You know, we have a house full of kids and it's this, you know, summertime and it's having friends over and pool parties and all that kind of stuff. But when I'm not being mom, I am an orthopedic surgeon that travels. I actually have a contract for the past five years with the um, Indian Health Services. So I'm on the Navajo Nation reservation uh, on the four corners. So New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Arizona. Uh, And it has been uh, a privilege, especially through COVID, um, the global pandemic, to take care of um, the Navajo Nation and other Indian tribes uh, during this time. And then when I'm not there uh, traveling, I'm a first lady, which is uh, within the African-American church. That's the the wife of a pastor. We have a mega church here on the north side of Houston, uh, the Luke. And uh, we're about 5,000 members. So I help with our health ministry here. Uh, and then I have several nonprofits that I started along with my book, The Rules of Medicine. So yeah, just a, a little this and that. A little this and that. So <laughs> you know, a lot of this and that I think is probably better. So why don't we start with medicine in terms of you know what drew you to that? So you have many passions that you um, are pursuing actively every single day, in addition to being super mom. But um, you know, what drew you to medicine? Those early days that thought you know this became an important thing, and specifically orthopedic surgery, just given the statistics where there's so few, um, both females as well. As as um, it is the least diverse um, of the specialties out there. I grew up in a small town, Denison, Texas, North Texas, right on the Red River. My mom was a nurse. I watched my mom put herself through school as well as she worked two jobs. So that strong woman image was always present with me. Uh, I I saw her, I got to pin her when she became an RN. She still worked to become, um, get her master's degree as I'm finishing high school. But I was very active, gymnast, cheerleading, uh, basketball, volleyball. I ran track and I hurt my my knee playing um, or running track, hitting the hurdles. And so I I was always in the hospital, but I was very present to me. There was no African-American doctors, no women physicians that I ever met 
um, when I was in Denison, Texas. So the idea that you could be one, I never saw one. So I didn't know it was possible. But my mom was of that push of if you want to, you can't, you just have to put your mind to it. And so um, after the injury, Dr. Black was his name, phenomenal orthopedic surgeon, gentle spirit, great bedside manner, and was like, you should go into ortho. You know, after this knee injury, you know a lot, you know, the physical therapy side, you know, the injection side, you know, bracing, you know, everything that it would really take, you know, and we need more diversity. And that was probably the first time I heard the word diversity when it came to medicine and growing up in a small town just went over my head, never thought about it again. But going to Texas Tech and realizing it was not very diverse, but knew that I wanted to go into orthopedic surgery early on and uh, started th that road. Um, somewhere I got a little distracted by my husband and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I came home and I got waitlisted to rush in Chicago to go to medical school. So I called myself being angry at God, which I would not advise. And uh uh, lo and behold, I told my parents I was going to move to New Jersey and work for Johnson Johnson as a chemistry major. I uh, had that degree and worked with organic chemistry, large molecules. And they said, well, let's talk about this. So we said, let's go to a coffee house and uh, sit down and talk about it. East Coast, West Coast coffee houses were booming. You know, Starbucks was hitting the scene big time. And so when I came home to small town USA, we had nothing. We had an IHOP, we had um, a kettle, and, and we had like a small little, you know, diner that was privately owned, but no coffee houses. And there was a large um, Austin College University, there was a junior college there. So I was like, why can't we just open a coffee house? And so with a wait, being on a wait list to go to medical school, I started my first job, my entrepreneurship at age 23, borrowed $50,000, wrote a business plan, learned how to write a business plan, uh, and started this venture that eventually would help me later on as far as being a businesswoman and entrepreneur as well. Okay, okay. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this, this journey is something else. So, okay, I'm going into medicine. I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I get waitlisted. I'm now a coffee shop entrepreneur. And yes. that, so that is um, incredible. And by the way, I'm a big plug plug for IHOP. That's what put me through college. Um, so you start, you start this coffee shop. And so what happens there and how, and, but you obviously went on to medical school to become an orthopedic surgeon. So was this just a sort of, you know, stop on the way or, you know, was medicine always the key um, endpoint that you were looking for, or was everything just a journey as, as it unfolded? You know, my motto in life is if you want to hear God laugh, make a plan. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what happened. Getting waitlisted allowed me to uh, enjoy falling in love, experiencing travel. And then this whole entrepreneurship sort of caught up with me and not knowing that I was a, a natural, if that's a possible a term for being an entrepreneur, it's either you love it or you don't. And I loved it. And so I got into UTMB in Galveston um, the next year. So about a year and a half later. So my parents continued the business for another year or so about almost three years. And then we sold the business, made a little bit of money to pay off some student loans. And then unbeknownst to me, maybe six months later, Starbucks came into the very spot where we were. Wow. Okay. So you so talk about, oh my God, what was I thinking? You know, it was, it was that, and, and they're still in that location. So I, I was on to something, you know, um, but timing is everything. So go to off to medical school, UTMB Galveston. Uh, and it was, it was hard. It was hard, not because, um, 
it wasn't the the learning process. It was taking in all of that information, you know, and then worrying about other things and and trying to still be present in who I was. And I was still growing up. I was 23 years old, you know, so it was a lot. It was definitely a lot. Well, let's talk about that career, you know, sort of through medical school to then becoming um, the practicing physician that you are now 30,000 orthopedic surgeons um, in terms of the specialty, as mentioned, it is, um, you know, it is the least number of women in that specialty and is notably the least diverse um, specialty that's out there 600 African American physicians within the specialty and again 100 of, of those African American physicians are women you being one so you, while diversity was a new concept, new word to you back when Dr. Black mentioned it, um, how you must have felt it, I'm assuming, um, as you went through the ranks and residencies and um, to become the physician you are today. Give us some perspective there. Would I do it again? I would question that because of the, um, what's the word, the fortitude that you have to have to continue going through residency being an only woman and being the only black woman is very, very daunting. Very, very daunting. I learned a lot. I learned how to be a team player. I learned how to stand up for myself. I learned to be a better surgeon uh, because I was very much watched, monitored, and criticized. Uh, In that sense, um, it's made me a better surgeon. It's made me a better woman. But at the same time, at that young age, and that idea that you're part of a family and you're part of a team, unbeknownst to you, you're actually on the outskirts because you don't look like them and you are not a man as well. And it was still very much a a boys club in in, uh, 2000, up to 2006. And even today, as you said, there's only a few of us. And so that um, does not relay or does not convert when you're applying. You're just excited to get in. And so even looking at the new residents that just came in and helping them um, doing something we call a, a boot camp, It's making them understand, yes, you are now in, however, you still have to work your ass off to get what you want, you know? Well, you you said the words, um, you know, being watched and criticized. So just, you know, I don't need to probably make too much of a leap to appreciate what that really means in terms of being in the moment while still needing to every day prove yourself, even though you're excelling at, you know, obviously to make it in that field, that has to be um, what your experience was. So, So what gave you the strength? And this is, you know, in those moments where you were, unfairly being questioned, watched, criticized, whatever the situation might have been, how did you sort of persevere, you know, draw on whatever you needed to draw on to, you know, persevere? Ironically, there's two things. One is uh, um, my spirituality, you know, as a, as a praying woman, as a woman of faith that believes that all things work together, uh, but also that um, for such a time as this, you've been placed in a certain place in time to do something and to make an impact. And I believe that it was not giving up on that, that uh, belief and or dream. And then secondly, um, ironically, sports, what you know got me into orthopedics, the injury itself, um, taught you a lot as far as being a team player, how to continue working hard, how to push yourself when you really can't go any further. Uh, that mentality of an athlete definitely helped as far as uh, finishing and completing and and being competitive and and not saying I'm going to give up, uh, but pushing myself even harder. 
Yeah, and you know we're we're at the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the yeah. um, the work that was done to allow for equal um, uh, equal opportunity for girls in sports, and so you know just as a product of that, that's been such a wonderful um, thing that's happened in terms of sports and what that's meant to just the development and advancement of of women. Let's let's talk more about physician burnout. Okay, so you you drawing on your spirituality. That's obviously an enormous part of who you are and. And, um, important in your um, life and life outlook. But as a physician, just, you know, we know that there are just ridiculous amounts of physician burnout. Now we're seeing incredible circumstances of violence against physicians. Um, you and I had just corresponded over email after the horrific Tulsa mass shooting um, where, uh, you know, where phys- a physician was targeted and killed in that shooting. An orthopedic surgeon. Okay. And orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. And so, so Dr. Sloan, just, you know, I guess, you know, one thing is just like, how are you doing today? Um, you know, in the world of medicine, given all of these additional pressures, the burnout, the now new, you know, perhaps new, newer violence against physician, how are you coping today? Are you drawing on the same things? Are you coping? How are you doing? So today, you know, it sort of marks the week. Uh, and so really sad. I'm still very, very um, tearful. Uh, I actually had met Dr. Preston Phillips years ago at the academy. Um, wonderful man. And being a few of that, we call them ourselves the 1.5. We're the 1.5% or the less than 2% African-Americans in the country. So we're on a WhatsApp chat and we talk daily. And so this morning, someone sent a video that uh, the family had put together. You know, it was a private um, thing and it it was tearful because uh, life lived and uh, gone too soon, you know. And so then the other request was, life goes on because you know Dr. Phillips was actually going to be in um, Africa next month doing joint replacements for you know community that was looking forward to this. And these patients have uh, been scheduled and they've gone through all the rigors of, of being ready for this surgery. And now he's not coming. And so we're collectively, the body of orthopedic surgeons in the country are trying to find people that could go to replace him in honor of him. So it's hard to be in this place. And especially when you see it was a a black man that was an orthopedic surgeon to get to where he was, wasn't easy. Uh, So it's it's tearful, it's remorseful. and, And I say, you have to be where you are, you know, because if not, then you don't process things and it does add up. And that does contribute to the burnout that so many of us are experiencing at this point, specifically after um, and or during, we're still in it, uh, COVID, uh, to watch so many die. And we transitioned in less than two and a half years from being the heroes as, you know, doctors and nurses to now almost being the villains. And so it's really, really disheartening, you know, and um, somewhat concerning because you understand that it is still, medicine is still a business and medicine is about money. It's about the bottom dollar. And so that's why I think so many of us have become more disenfranchised for our love and passion of medicine. It's the bureaucracy that we're dealing with today. This call is causing the burnout. You have just personally um, things that you draw on to maintain a level of energy or um, excitement about the profession. Are you finding yourself becoming more disenfranchised with the world of medicine as a physician? What are you thinking about these days just personally? I believe I'm still hopeful. 
you know, I'm an internal optimist in the sense of, you know, there's got to be something, there's got to be a way we can still impact. And so I'm looking at the medical students, I'm looking at nursing students and PA students and residents uh, and, and the ones that are now on the path that I was 20 years ago to say, how can they make a difference? And then, of course, my, you know, my go to is always rule 34, pay it forward. How can I help them become a better me earlier? What can I give you that's going to instill in you um, the wherewithal to be successful in medicine and make a difference and then give back? That's that's where I am right now. OK, and, you know, medicine is just one aspect, one important aspect of who you are and what you focus on. Um, you mentioned you'd self-describe as a health equity disruptor. Um, and again, going back to Dr. Black, you know, while diversity was um, a new new to you in the way back machine, it certainly isn't <laughs> new to anyone now. So let's let's talk a little bit about health equity in terms of you know why that's important to you and what um, what you're focused on there. So uh, I'm the vice president of the Black Women's Orthopedic Surgeons Organization. And in that, um, recently, there was a, um, an executive order that uh, 45 had put out before he left office. And that executive order was basically reversing diver diversity, equity, and inclusion in any government facilities. And so um, I helped, I was part of a group that we wrote a response to that, which was actually um, help to turn over that executive order um, when the next president and, and our new vice president came into office. So it was reversed and there were several letters that were part of that, but it was one of the passions of if I don't stand up, if I don't say something, if I don't put it in writing, then it was like I just took it. And so for me, it means that it's my watch right now. If it was the 50s or 60s and it was a civil rights movement or whatever else, um, my place, my time, my here and now is, is currently medicine and making sure the things that could possibly help um, increase the numbers of African-Americans and minorities in medicine. And then also that diversity has been correlated to better, better clinical care for patients that look like me. So I have to spend, stand up. I have to speak up at this point, because if I don't, it's like I'm not doing anything. And then what was the point of my whole journey? Well, it's an important journey, and um, those studies are well documented in terms of just the outcomes um, that that um, uh, improve when patients see physicians who are more demographically aligned um, with them. You work today with the Indian Health Service, so that, that is a population um, that certainly does not have the best outcomes out there. Talk to, let's talk about your work there and why that population is so important for you to work with. It's very humbling. Uh, when I say I also have a medical clinic in Haiti, and I liken the two because of the disparities that are there, but also the almost the lack of hope. You know, there's a hopelessness there because the funds or the mentality and the energy that is there is also almost desperate. And so, in going in, uh, you're not just <laughs> openly welcomed. You know, you you're an outsider to them, and so they are still very very guarded people, tribes that uh, do not bode well with outsiders. And so the continuum of me being there over this past five years, I only go seven to 10 days out of the month, but now I have treated three generations. I've treated the mom, the child and the grandmother, you know, I've treated families and people in the hospital and in other communities. And, and so that has given me 
almost the feel of a full-time practice, but more so it's an honor to be part of that practice. And then learning things that are not normal, or I shouldn't say normal, learning things that are not traditional medicine. So of course there's a, a medicine man, and then there's two different types of medicine man. And then how you approach a patient that has a, um, a fracture for me is, is different because it's not just like, okay, we're going to fix this and we're going to schedule you for surgery, yada, yada, yada. They don't believe in implants. They don't want things in their body. They don't believe that they can go to their spiritual God in the end um, with this in their body and be accepted. Um, they want to try their forms of medicine, um, everything from what we call manipulation to different types of services that would ceremonies that would render them um, healed. And, and that translates in almost every religion and, and spiritual uh, denomination that we have today on earth. So I, I respect that, but I learned so much and it's an honor to be there and be part of that. How does that mix or not mix with, you know, what might be considered evidence-based medicine or things that you've learned? How do you incorporate um, those differences into your practice? I think it definitely helps with me being um, the wife of a preacher, spiritual being myself, uh, an understanding and being respectful. You have to be respectful in treating anybody in any aspect of medicine uh, to include the patient. I used to, to laugh when I first started medicine was um, we had the baby boomers and older generations. When I worked at the VA here in Houston, it was the okay, doc, whatever you say. And then now you have the generation of the WebMD Google doctors that basically come in and tell you what they want, how they want it, when they want it, then how much <laughs> they're going to pay, right? And then you have a generation that's sort of in between there. And that's the population of patients that do the best because not only are they willing to accept your knowledge and, and your foundation and your background, um, but also trust you as a, a partner in their healthcare. Uh, you also have the patients that want to be involved in their healthcare, And so that's what it's going to take to be successful. And um, we, we're at a brink of um, those generations sort of crossing lines and blurring the lines to the newer generation that's pretty much just web-based and virtual at this point. Uh, so I'm not sure where we're, where we're at as far as long-term outcomes with uh, medical care and how we transition over, but I definitely believe technology is part of it. Well, I also think just the words you're using of respect and humbling and just being, um, you know, how to incorporate those things into the care delivery that you're providing is just really, um, it, it's inspiring to hear it, quite frankly. So Dr. Sloan, as we sort of clo close out here, I just, I'd like to just turn just a little bit to some of the other things that you do. I mean, you know, with all of the work in your practice, you've talked about a little bit about um, your church, um, which is clearly very, very important to you, but you're also an incredible strong advocate for women, more women in STEM. So maybe just a little bit about um, those pursuits. First of all, how do you find the time? And then also, you know, why, you know, why do you follow all these different passions or where do you find the energy perhaps is a better question to follow all these passions? I think uh, mostly if you say what's your mission in life, you know, every person should have their own mission in life. And so my mission is if it's not medicine, um, if it's not a spiritual, then it's definitely the educational side of more minorities. And so anything that I do pretty much falls into those categories. So 
Um, right now, like my Sloan STEM plus arts, it's specifically to increase the number of minority students that are going to go into STEM fields, uh, STEM careers, because we know that is going to correlate with uh, financial sustainability for another generation of African-American kids. Um, the, and there's only 9% of African-Americans that are in the STEM fields, but we know that technology, science, engineering, math, all of that medicine has increased uh, over almost a hundred fold in the past 20 years. And, but yet the number of African-Americans going into that and or minorities is still very, very low. Uh, so that's a passion for my, for me specifically, I can have kids from our church. Um, our first year, I think we did almost 200 children for a week STEM camp, just that exposure. And for people that look like them, as well as it was financially affordable for the parents, you know, cause I've done some of the larger tech camps for my own kids and it's not cheap, you know? So the idea of having something that's um, not just the early exposure, you know, something that's financially feasible, as well as having those mentors that look like you and can talk to you on your level and be respectful. Um, it changes the game as far as long-term output. Um, the other thing was, you know, I, I fell into it, the, like the entrepreneur thing and realized that I had a lot of the skills to help other women. So through our church, we always would have different seminars and our, you know, um, meetings. And I, I saw that women needed more, just as you did through, through this podcast was, how can I help women be inspired and motivated? And so starting me and we called Motivating Empowering Women to Excel was specifically to help women financially, spiritually, and, and um, physically, you know, it's like when we talked about these different things, uh, but what I found in the end was to take it to the next level, women had hopes and dreams that had never been nurtured or mentored or pushed and specifically minorities. And so it was like, how can I help you start this business that is a passion for you? It may be a book, it may be a nonprofit, it may be just a small um, organization that, that you don't even want to formalize. But, you know, over the past 10 years, I've helped about 100 women uh, be that basic entrepreneur like I was so many years ago and, and teaching them how to do a, a business plan. How do you market? How do you get onto social media? What does it look like to brand yourself? And, and how do you network and be collaborative with other organizations that are doing what you do so you don't have to do all of the work and reinvent the wheel? And it has been phenomenal to watch women just blossom. And then again, I go back to rule 34, pay it forward. When you're done and doing what you're doing, make sure you help somebody else, another woman do exactly what you've done. Well, that is an incredible list. I mean, I don't rule 34. I, I can't even imagine what rule <laughs> one through 33 is, but you're very, very committed to that one for, for certain. And Dr. Sloan, as we close out here on inspiring women, I mean, there is so much that you are both passionate about, but then clearly extraordinarily active in making something happen, um, in particular for others and serving others. It's just clear that is your mission in life. But as we close out, on today's discussion. Um, I just love any last advice you might give to perhaps younger women who are just starting out as they pursue their own career journeys. Um, two things, um, be unapologetic. Do not go into, our society has taught us and media has taught us to quiet down or to put our ideas, beliefs, dreams, hopes, aspirations on the back burner. No, just say no to that and move, move ahead and be unapologetic in moving ahead and who you are. And then secondly, um, it's the age old question, can women have it all? And I say, yes, you can have it all. It doesn't come all at once. It may come in time. It may come in you know, spurts. It may come in different segments of your life, but in different phases, you can have it all. And, and you make what is important to you at that time in your life, 
um, put it for in the forefront. And those are the things you focus on. And then you never know whatever season, the next season in your life will bring those other things to you, but go for what you want. And I think you can have it all. Well, Dr. Sun, I think you may in fact be the poster child for you can indeed <laughs> have it all. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation. I have been speaking to Dr. Sonia Sloan. Dr. Sloan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lori. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.